Welcome to the Amy Podcast, produced by the Association for the Advancement of Medical Instrumentation, in partnership with the studios of Healthcare Tech Talk. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Amy Podcast. I'm Terry Baker. Today, we'll be talking about the education of healthcare technology management professionals. We'll discuss the various job titles and job duties that drive the educational needs of healthcare technology management professionals. To help us discuss this important topic, we have with us two great guests. First, we have Barb Christie, Ph.D. She is an Associate Professor and Program Director of Healthcare Engineering Technology Management for the Purdue School of Engineering and Technology at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. She has a bachelor's and master's degree in biomedical engineering and a doctorate in higher education. Her program focuses on high-quality training for technicians at both the associate and baccalaureate level. Next, we have with us Frank Painter. Frank is a certified clinical engineer and is the adjunct professor at the University of Connecticut in the biomedical engineering department. He runs a highly regarded clinical engineering internship program at the graduate level in that department. In addition, Frank has more than 30 years of experience in the field and provides consulting services to various organizations. Welcome to the show, Barb and Frank. Thank you for joining us this morning. Hi, good morning. Good morning. So today we're talking about the education of healthcare technology management professionals. And that can be a little unwieldy because we're talking about different types of professionals with different educational backgrounds. Let's start by identifying some of those professionals. What is the job of biomedical equipment technician, or BMET, in a hospital? And what is the typical education background? By comparison, what is the job of a clinical engineer in the hospital? And what is the education background? The BMET is often an entry-level position for graduates of either military training or an associate's degree, a two-year degree. And students arrive, or graduates arrive at the clinical site with basic entry-level skills. I often describe it as they know enough not to be dangerous. But much of the culture and environment of the clinical site needs to be learned over time. So the students who start as technicians tend to be very device-focused and learn specifics for devices over time. Okay. And then um, the role of the clinical engineer in the healthcare technology management setting is that they're really um, focused on, I would say, project management is uh, sort of a theme that overrides most of the work that they do. Hmm. For instance, they may be involved in identifying uh, the exact needs of the hospital, the clinical staff, determining what technology actually fits the needs to then um, identify which vendors are appropriate for acquiring equipment to be able to um, then sort of be involved in the management of it throughout its history once it's installed. So, for instance, uh, making sure that the nurses are trained appropriately when issues come up to identify whether they're operator issues or equipment design issues or environmental issues that have affected the performance of the device and help the hospital solve those problems. For instance, when uh, accidents happen, there may be an underlying cause that really has a uh, put the hospital in a difficult situation and maybe perhaps caused an injury. A clinical engineer might be involved in evaluating that and providing input to the hospital as well. To just bring a uh, perspective to the uh, healthcare setting, 
also new buildings, new facilities, new services are planned. Uh, clinical engineers may be involved in working with the architects to uh, oversee the design or ensure that the design is what is needed to accommodate the technology. They also may be involved in planning new equipment for the uh, new facility. They also may be um, responsible for managing the technology throughout its entire life cycle. So making decisions about inspection frequencies, making decisions about types of support uh, contracts that may be necessary, uh, what kinds of service arrangements. Uh, clinical engineers may be involved in uh, overseeing uh, the financial aspects. So sort of to relate this, compare this and relate this to what Barbara was talking about, the technicians um, who come into the hospital are, are responsible for the maintenance and the repair of medical equipment and uh, all things technical. And the clinical engineers, even though they have the title or the education of an engineer, they're really involved more in um, a management of the technology. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that sort of sums it up. I'm sure I left a few pieces out. Sure. And hopefully we'll probably hit on those as we go along. The career planning handbook that Amy prepared recently does offer very in-depth analysis of the job tasks and experiences that are related to uh, both the technician and the technician roles, as well as the engineer and engineering roles. So those are very, I think, articulate and carefully spelled out to provide a lot more depth than can be done during the podcast. Sure. And we'll have to put uh, links to those resources uh, in the show notes that our uh, listeners can go check out. So I would think that there's some overlap between the two professions in terms of responsibilities and skill sets. Is that true? What are the key differences? Yeah, I do think there is one key point, and, and that is that different clinical sites look at this in different ways. So I have many alumni who have the job title clinical engineer and have some clinical engineering responsibilities, even though they have technician training. So I do see a wide variations based on the institution and the institution's ability, for example, to recruit clinical engineers. There is a significant shortage of people with clinical engineering training. And often I find that my technicians step into those roles, especially when they've earned a bachelor's degree, because they do have some project management experience. So the, the variations cause some challenges when we try to make generalizations. I would agree with that. There, there's a shortage of staff in both the area of biomedical equipment technicians and uh, the engineering side. But there's really a shortage on the engineering side. It's, it seems as though all of my graduates uh, at the time of graduation, there are two or three or four jobs per graduate to step into, which means that there's a real need in the industry, but there's a real lack of individuals. One point to address to your question, Terry, is that we find that um, engineers are not, not trained in the technical repair area, although some clinical engineers feel very comfortable in repairing and uh, maintaining medical equipment and go off to do that, perhaps for the manufacturer, perhaps for a hospital. Uh, but most clinical engineers are involved in uh, project management and equipment planning and medical device integration and, and areas like that. But we find that there's a, quite a few technicians that are just inclined to be good managers and uh, deal with people well and uh, naturally perform well in the role of manager. And they rise to the need when there's openings and there are not fully qualified managers. So every department needs a manager 
if there's a clinical engineer available, it's, that's great. If not, or, or even uh, there may be BMETs who are so qualified that they uh, naturally fit into the role and perhaps even perform better than uh, an engineer might. It, d- it doesn't take an engineer to be the perfect manager. It takes someone with, a, with an interest in that area and a natural tendency to be a good manager. Uh, if it's an engineer who is that person, well, perfect. If it's a BMET who is that person, then it, it works out very well. Well, and I think we've touched on it that different organizations have tended to use different terminology. Right. And therefore, sometimes I think you might have a mismatch in the the title and the education if you're following a a rigid standard, if you will. You know, how significant of a factor is it in raising general awareness about educational needs, especially within the healthcare community? I think it's critical for us to discuss the names that we have assigned to roles or sites, clinical sites assigned to roles, so that we can address shortages and determine how to establish pipelines to be able to meet expectations. The Veterans Administration, for example, requires a degreed engineer and very specific based on the government's personnel requirements. And so they don't have flexibility that other institutions do. So in order to meet the needs of these clinical sites, we have to open the discussion and start debating and encourage people to understand what academic programs are available and whether or not they satisfactorily meet the hiring needs of hospitals. Can you just repeat the question, Terry? Basically, what I was going for there is we've talked already about the difference in titles can be not even based on aren't following kind of a formula. Some hospitals don't say you're a BMET, so do this. You're a clinical engineer, so do this. Some hospitals call it the biomedical engineering department, and everybody's a biomedical engineer no matter what level they fill. At some hospitals, it's clinical engineering, and you know what I mean? And so how important is it to raise awareness of the needs for education of these various levels? I think by uh, hospitals calling their BMET staff clinical engineers or biomedical engineers or or any other of a variety of titles which do exist, it just becomes a little confusing when they're trying to fill the jobs. I think the reason that they do it is uh, to make the staff feel more professional because the healthcare environment is a professional environment. But it's not an accurate title. And more importantly, it's not the title that the industry has defined. So, for instance, Amy has uh, published uh, some guidelines, um, and there are others who have published guidelines about what do we call the people who do this? What do we call the people who do that? And um, we call the people who do the equipment repair and maintenance and respond to the floor to respond to the clinical environment when there are technical problems, we call them biomedical equipment technicians or something along that line. So it doesn't affect operations, of course, but it does uh, create some confusion, you know, in terms of communication throughout the industry. If if I'm calling it one thing and everyone else understands it to be something else, it creates confusion. So um, it's, it's not an ideal situation. I think it tremendously impacts the number of academic programs. I think that's a huge hurdle that needs to be talked about more because we can't have more clinical engineering programs if we don't have an understanding of what that is and how it differs from biomedical engineering. I think it really impacts our ability to produce graduates. That makes a lot of sense. So how has the education of HTM professionals changed over the last decade? I'd like to get your thoughts on how technical advances are changing what students need to know 
And please feel free to distinguish between the needs of the BMETs versus the clinical engineers. Sure. I think I'll let Barbara start uh, because this really impacts uh, BMETs uh, quite a bit. Exactly. Our technician training, our curriculum has evolved tremendously over time. It's interesting. I was in a meeting yesterday and we used to include networking in our degree lots of demand for networking. And now we're realizing networking isn't quite right. We don't need students to know how to set up the network. We need to make sure students know how to connect equipment to the network and communicate from devices and the patient information to be able to communicate that with the network, which is a different skill set. So we're seeing an evolution of skills, and we're also seeing an elevation of skills. We're seeing a demand for more understanding of product management, life cycle management, risk evaluation, many things like that. So we're seeing less reliance on component troubleshooting, soldering skills, component replacement, and far more analysis of systems, integration of systems, integration of devices. So it's very much a changing environment for us in our curriculum so that when students walk into a patient care room, they know a lot about all the devices in the room and how all those devices integrate, connect, and connect with the network and the EMR. That's a tremendous change from the old days of teaching circuit analysis and soldering skills. Yeah, and it's sort of interesting, the um, the, the basic subjects that we teach in clinical engineering have been the same for the last uh, 25 years in terms of financial management or service management or risk management or uh, other such areas. However, the industry is definitely changing. So for instance, the techniques or the methods of providing service uh, have changed. So to understand what the vendors are using for service models and how uh, they're charging for service models has changed. And, it, and, and in the last 10 years, it's made quite a few adjustments. And Barbara mentioned it, but this whole idea about networking, about 10 years ago, most medical equipment was not computer-based and did not have an RJ45 network connector on the back of it. So it just wasn't connected to the network. But now, nearly all medical equipment, and very shortly, all medical equipment will be connected to the network. So understanding how data flows and the formats and the you know the languages used and the, what the structure and the architecture is, is something new to the clinical engineering field and to biomedical equipment technology. And, and they learn it at different levels. Also, the understanding of uh, risk management, the Joint Commission has changed their approach to managing risk, to analyzing accidents and incidents, to um, identifying, you know, faults in the system that uh, may cause trouble in the future. There's tools and techniques that have only come out in the last 10 years. Uh, Root cause analysis, failure modes and effects analysis are tools that engineers use to, or that the healthcare system uses to analyze accidents that happened in the past uh, retrospectively or to look at situations to reduce the likelihood of failure in the future. Uh, Oh, and there's another area too, the whole area of... um, Human factors is one that has come up in the last 10 years. And human factors, it starts with the design of the medical equipment being made uh, easy to use and intuitive for the clinicians. And the FDA started a push about 10 years ago, and, and manufacturers and hospitals have sort of lined up behind this movement to improve the human factors of medical devices. And so for 
clinical engineers and biomedical equipment technicians to understand what it is so that when something, you know, when a nurse says, uh, this thing doesn't work and the technician tests it and says, uh, you know, it functions just fine. I can't find any problem with it. It must be user error um, and sends it back to the floor. Now we don't do that so much anymore because we understand that the, the design of the equipment, the human factors of the equipment may be a factor in the nurse's judgment that it didn't work. So training and teaching students about that whole issue so they, they look at things in a different light is new. Hmm. So there there have been a lot of changes, uh, although the fundamentals are, are very similar to what we've been teaching over the years. Yeah, the ba- basic uh, thought processes and troubleshooting skills and things of that nature, those good fundamental skills can carry a person through a career. Having said that, being the guy that has hired people coming out of school like this, one of your concerns is that you're going to get someone that was taught nothing but theory or someone that was taught technology that is five, ten years out of date. And so it's really great to hear that your program seem to be doing a great job of keeping up with the times, as it were. Is it hard for educational programs to keep up with the changes in healthcare technology? It depends well, on the academic program. I would say that there are drivers to encourage programs to remain current. For example, program-specific accreditation can push for that. Amy recently became the lead society for an engineering program-specific accreditation. But I think smaller community college-based programs that may not have the resources, the stature, the ability to connect with many professionals in the field to be aware of what's happening, as well as have the funds to be able to keep equipment current, can be extremely challenged to evolve as the profession evolves. Yeah, and I'm sort of in in a slightly different position because I'm not a full-time faculty member at the University of Connecticut. I'm an adjunct, although I run this clinical engineering education program. I have the ability to do consulting on the side. And so most of the work that I do, I learn from, but I also make a real attempt to uh, try to read current journals, talk to people about current issues, uh, attend uh, Amy meetings or uh, local biomed society meetings to sort of understand where the industry is going so that I might make adjustments in the program. So for instance, in the last, well, we're doing it for the second time. So only three years ago, we added a course to our curriculum, which we call clinical systems engineering, which is all about medical device integration and interoperability and passing data back and forth. So now the students are involved in that because it was recognized as something that's new. One of the techniques that I think academic programs that are successful use is that they stay in touch with the local clinical engineering, biomed, healthcare technology management community and have local directors on their board of advisors, or they have a board of advisors, and the local directors come and talk to them and and maybe are involved with the students in the program in some way. At the University of Connecticut, we have an internship program, and there's 15 hospitals that take our 22 students. And those directors of clinical engineering in those hospitals are really, in my opinion, my partners or the University of Connecticut's partners in putting this educational program in place. So when things are planned, when course content is being prepared for the following year, I may send it out for review to the regional directors of clinical engineering. And uh, some may have the time to give me feedback and therefore adjustments are made. So for me, uh, having 15 colleagues 
who are actively involved in the field trying to accomplish what's needed uh, are a real asset. And I think one of the things that makes the UConn program so good is that these 15 co-workers of mine are providing input and oversight and review of curriculum and uh, identification of uh, hot button issues. That makes sense. Bringing the uh, real world experience back into your program uh, makes a lot of sense to me anyway. Right. And an industrial advisory board is a requirement of program-specific accreditation. And so as we look at disseminating, Amy, disseminating best practices for academic programs through ABET, we're going to be able to talk about, even if you don't have ABET accreditation, here are best practices, including having an industrial advisory board that does these things, reviews these things. We'll be providing some of that guidance over time as we evolve. Uh, October is the first meeting that Amy will be able to attend as part of ABET. Very neat. So what about soft skills such as the ability to communicate effectively? How important are they to the education of a solid HTM professional? Well, one of the things that is um, clear is that every person in in the, I'll call it a clinical engineering department, but uh, the HTM department is uh, required or it, it's necessary for the job function to interface with people on, on some level. So whether it's, um, and the least important, although it's important, your, your colleagues, but there's so many clinical professionals who every single BMET and clinical engineer and uh, HTM department staff member uh, interfaces with, but also uh, then people in the administrative levels, vendors, others on the phone, outside consultants, uh, perhaps getting information from the ECRI staff or uh, MD byline staff for technical consulting. I mean, it just, it's, it seems to me that being able to have good customer service skills, have good communication skills, have good uh, listening skills is pretty critical. You know, it's, it's not like, uh, although I'm not completely familiar with it, but what I imagine a, an industrial job would be is uh, something like that where you'd sit at your desk and work on a project for two or three weeks and, and have minimal interface with others other than maybe your boss or a few coworkers. In the uh, HTM environment, the HTM staff is uh, speaking to others multiple times a day from three or four to 20 or 30. So these skills are very important. So are we doing anything proactively within the education of these HTMs so that they're best prepared once they make it to the hospital or the healthcare setting and do have to start talking to uh, clinical folks or vendors or either other support departments? It's interesting in the differences between Frank students and mine. So Frank students have earned a bachelor's degree and have perhaps through maturity addressed some of the of professional skills that we talk about and and are needed. My students come to us at many of them at 18, uh, fresh and green. And so we have established a professionalism rubric that contains 11 qualities, including things like empathy, collaboration, verbal communication, initiative, self-improvement, adaptability, those kinds of really trying to nail down the professionalism soft skills with very specific benchmarks so students understand what does it mean to be empathetic. And we now incorporate this assessment of this rubric throughout the curriculum. So first semester, freshman year, they do a self-assessment. And as they say, we have benchmarks for excellent skills, requires improvement or unacceptable skills, helping them understand, for example, making decisions about tattoos and piercings 
How does personal grooming impact and body art? How does that impact your future professionalism persona? So we integrate that throughout the curriculum and try to help the students learn to assess these skills and develop these skills so that by graduation, they at least know what an employer might expect and what the qualities of a good employee would look like. Very neat. Definitely long gone are the days where you can be the the curmudgeonly uh, technical guy that's uh, hard to work with or hard to uh, get along with. Uh, Saturday Night Live used to have a skit, and now it was an IT guy, but it just kind of making fun of the inconsiderate, you know, think I'm smarter than you. Who are you going to offend on this podcast? <laughs> What's that? Well, right. And, Who are you going to offend? <laughs> I don't know. I passionately believe in this. I actually, you know, you use your personality much more than you use your soldering iron now, and I yeah. think that that's what... Uh, being there to deliver good customer service along with technical skills is just so invaluable. Yeah, I'd like to add that one of the things that we do in the Yukon program, because these young engineers are going to end up in um, management positions and uh, interfacing with administrators and uh, the clinical people across the board, which generally speaking, all have master's degrees or PhDs or MD degrees. Uh, they're higher educated. So our focus on preparing these young clinical engineers to interface with that group are we spend a lot of time in the two-year program teaching people how to make good presentations. What is a good presentation? How do you do public speaking? What are the do's and don'ts for public speaking? So in every course, the students need to make a presentation to the class about the project that they've worked on. And they're graded on their ability to present effectively and in an interesting manner. Additionally, we teach skills on, how, to, for instance, how to run a good meeting. What are the do's and don'ts of running a good meeting? And all of these sorts of things are also, we teach them good listening skills because there's so many uh, times when you're, you know, interviewing people or asking questions or trying to get information and being able to listen well is uh, is key. So, yeah, Terry, I, I agree with you completely that that uh, your ability to interface with others in an effective and professional manner is nearly as important as some of the technical skills that you bring to the table. Sure, and for full disclosure, I started out 27 years ago with a soldering iron, a flat top in the United States Navy, so I definitely had to uh, maybe come around to understanding customer service. So you've both been involved in various efforts at Amy to highlight the education needs of HTM professionals and develop resources to help. Could you tell me about some of those efforts? I think one of the major efforts that I've been involved in is shifting Amy to be the lead society for program-specific accreditation through ABET. Originally, and in historical perspective, the lead society was Biomedical Engineering Society. And the mismatch was really a challenge because program-specific criteria, which describe curriculum content, was driven by the Biomedical Engineering Society, whose primary mission is research and not aligned with the clinical setting. So this shift has really, it's just happened, and it is a long-coming and highly powerful tool that we have to be able to disseminate best practices, to update the curriculum uh, recommendations. Even if programs don't seek ABET program-specific accreditation, and many don't for a variety of reasons, the ability to set some expectations 
is really a powerful tool to uniformly set expectations for employers so they know what an academic graduate will look like and what skill sets they may have. And the core curriculum ties very nicely into that. So Amy also was working on a core curriculum project to identify content that would be appropriate for programs, especially two-year programs that educate technicians and looking at guidance, student outcomes, and recommendations to be able to help both academic programs and employers evaluate academic curricula and decide whether or not it's contemporary and evolving as needed. So I think both of these have have the potential to improve academic programs, improve reliability, and diminish variation among programs, academic programs, and also hopefully start new academic programs because the ones we have existing at the moment don't produce enough graduates to meet the needs of employers. Is there were, I guess, one committee formed to evaluate the future of healthcare technology management. And in the process, uh, it fed information into the document that Barbara mentioned, the um, career guidelines book with uh, definitions of um, jobs. And and those definitions have been changing uh, slowly over the years. And uh, there are even new positions that didn't exist 10 years ago that are now key. For instance, medical device integration specialist, which is part of clinical engineering people, but working quite a bit more in the in the IT environment. So um, to define these is a task that Amy has taken on and has done quite well with. It's been very, very helpful, I think, to, uh, to those uh, in the field who are looking for that kind of guidance. Sure. As mentioned, uh, I'm a veteran. So I was curious, I think some of the military branches have uh, medical equipment training for staff to help maintain the medical equipment inside the military. Do you see veterans coming out and then coming into your, uh, your program and, and bridging the gap? Do you have any thoughts on that and how they do in the program or what are the good steps for them? Do they start from the beginning? Absolutely not. Uh, here at Purdue, we grant folks who have DOD training 43 credits towards their bachelor's degree nice. so that they don't have to start, quote, at the beginning. And that, for many of those folks, has been a powerful tool to get them to be able to earn the bachelor's degree. And we've had many who, even in active duty, we've had a graduate who was stationed in Afghanistan with the Army and one guy stationed in Japan with the Navy, both graduates without attending school in Indianapolis. Those who are employed in the field do sometimes find pressure to earn an academic credential if they have military training and and maybe a Ames Community College associate degree, which is built on the DOD school as well. But that academic credential does tend to be a tool that is leverage for some employers. And so we try to work with them. And I know uh, Thomas Edison State College does the same thing, to be able to provide some credentials for those folks with DOD training. Great. Yeah, in our program, we have a very nice relationship with the Veterans Administration where our students are doing two-year internships in VA hospitals in, uh, you know, uh, actually in multiple areas in the country, not just uh, southern New England where UConn is based. And we have uh, probably five or six students this year, and uh, some years we've had more, who were doing these internships with the VA. And the VA uh, really encourages veterans to apply for 
job openings, and those veterans that are qualified get preferential treatment. And so we've had quite a few veterans who had a bachelor's in engineering or who acquired a bachelor's in engineering after their military service and then came into our program, got a a master's degree, and then went off to uh, work in the VA hospital and be very successful. We also had an interesting relationship with the Chilean military. In Chile, they have uh, hospitals, well, the military hospitals, and they put quite a bit of money into the military hospitals. There are two brand new hospitals in Chile uh, for for the military plus previously existing ones. So one of the things that happened for quite a few years is that the uh, assistant director of clinical engineering who was planning to become director when the current director retired, they'd come to UConn and get a master's degree, which focused on clinical engineering uh, and MS, BME, but with the focus of clinical engineering. And then they they went back to Chile and were then promoted into the director position of uh, these two new hospitals. So it worked out very well. So showing preferential treatment and, you know, I guess acknowledging the strong training program the military has is uh, is also a part of what we do. Well, very neat. And uh, again, appreciate your uh, program supporting veterans. As a educational professionals, what keeps you up at night? What do you worry about when it comes to ensuring healthcare has the best educated BMETs and clinical engineers? I have a very strong opinion on this one. Okay. I believe that the HTM profession does not place enough emphasis on academic credentials at all. So as part of the career ladder uh, reference creation, I strongly urge that we set as an entry-level credential an associate's degree, and I battled for that. It took quite a bit of arguing and discussion that an associate's degree was not necessary. And yet we see, for example, nursing evolving from a diploma to a bachelor's degree, now a DNP, a doctorate of nursing practice. I think the medical community outside of the HDM profession is very academically credential-focused have escalated their academic requirements over time. We have not. And what happens then is we have a severe shortage of people with academic credentials who can be educators. So Myron Hartman was the program director at Penn State, a very powerful individual who contributed a great deal to the profession and passed away way too early. Penn State is struggling to find a replacement person who has a master's degree, because that's an academic credential requirement for program-specific accreditation, so has a master's degree who is an interest in teaching. The number of master's degrees individuals in our HTM profession is very low, and I believe that that stems from this historical perspective of you can learn this on the job and it's a skill set that we can evolve over time. And those are all probably very true, but in an environment like healthcare where academic credentials for every other profession are evolving and increasing, we have done ourselves a terrible disservice, especially as people retire, by not training more people with more degrees, more bachelor's degrees. There's only perhaps 12, DeVry having 10 of them, bachelor degree programs for technicians in the country. That's crazy. That's not going to provide enough long-term graduates to meet the needs of employers. Wow. I didn't realize it was so uh, 
so limited dismal? in opportunities. Well, yeah, that's the word, dismal. <laughs> let's say limited in opportunities. I've been blessed uh, to work uh, fairly close to a premier program and uh, use many graduates from that program. So I've been spoiled. Frank, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I do. Um, because of our experience with every single student getting multiple job offers before graduation, uh, nearly every single student getting multiple job offers before graduation, I see the market as desperately needing clinical engineers. And um, of, of course, I worry about the relevance of the curriculum and the uh, uniformity of the training. You know, we have 15 trainings, internship sites, and, and having uniform training throughout requires uh, quite a bit of effort. But really, the real problem is that most young engineers, uh, high school graduates, uh, young potential engineers, or those who have graduated from you know, engineering schools uh, throughout the United States have no clue what clinical engineering is or healthcare technology management. And so for us to reach those people with enough of an answer to say, this is an option mm -hmm. and it's a pretty cool option and sure. it's a medical, you know, these people are, are professionals in the healthcare environment and work elbow to elbow with uh, physicians and, and nurses trying to improve the quality of healthcare. Really, I, I see the problem as promotion to the rest of the world who doesn't, or the rest of the, the technical world, the individuals who might very well be extremely interested in working this in this field, but yet not knowing about it. So that to me is what stands between having enough qualified candidates to fill the job openings, which are plentiful. As we can see from the Amy website, sure. I think they advertise there's a thousand openings. Wow. And the pool of individuals, being able to connect those two is, uh, I think, is one of our critical problems. But there's also a capacity issue. We can't advertise the career field and mm -hmm. say it's amazing if there aren't enough academic programs. Right. I may fall in love with this field, but Frank's program and maybe we could consider one or two others. That's it. If I can't move to Connecticut, then I can be really interested in the field. But if there's no capacity or worse, a hundred people discover Frank's program and now all want to come there. I think the capacity issue, it's a chicken and egg situation. Mm. We can advertise and we can help people understand what the profession is. But if there's no capacity, it, it's not going to do us any good. Right. And, and I, I think it is a chicken and an egg which comes first issue. If the advertising or the communication to the public was more effective, we would get uh, higher quality students to fill the seats in the program. But secondly, we would be able to expand the program. And if we expanded the program slightly every year, uh, at some point, it becomes visible enough to the academic community that another school in another major metropolitan area would be able to start a similar program. And I'm actively working with with other colleagues to try to do that, but it takes so many things to get it going. But to have another MS, BME program focused on clinical engineering, for instance, in the Chicago area or the Atlanta area or the Washington, D.C. area or the Los Angeles area, where there are a lot of hospitals, could be viable. But I guess the academic, you know, for, and, and I've had this discussion quite a bit with my other academic colleagues and other others uh, in the academic environment, and they don't see clinical engineering as a real attractive profession to young students. So if they started a program, they might get two or three applicants, and, and that would then, you know, they would start it, and then it would fail, and that would be the end of it. So I'm sort of uh, thinking that starting off with a lot of advertisement to um, 
undergraduate schools and to high schools or articles in the paper. What is it? Uh, advocacy of the profession is sure. what more of it is needed from my perspective. But Barbara's right. If we do an excellent job, you know, what are we going to do then? Sure. But maybe ramping I mean, it up. Money Magazine, Money Magazine just named us one of the top five careers you've never heard of, best careers you've never heard mm-hmm. of. Perfect. And I'm getting some inquiries, but people are laughing saying, well, I'm really not in coming to Indianapolis. So certainly we hope to see more applicants of traditional 18-year-old age who will come and live on campus. But I think that when I try to say, well, there's a couple other bachelor's programs, here's where they are, and here's the associate list, it is challenging. Yeah. Another thing that Barbara mentioned that uh, that I think is is really critical. She mentioned that Myron Hartman uh, recently passed away and that Penn State is looking for a replacement for him and they're having a hard time. I see the same thing happening up here at the University of Connecticut. I would like to retire sometime in the next three or four or five years. And I don't see, you know, a large number of um, potential applicants who don't, you know, they have wonderful jobs already, you know, and and why would they come and take a part-time job or an academic job at a possibly lower pay to come and uh, and teach students you know so i also see the f- not only the flow of individuals into the field but the flow of or the availability of uh, professionals who really understand the field to step into role academic roles as being uh, an issue as well so if you could single-handedly change one thing about the education of htm professionals what would that be uh, for me more programs more programs a- across the country, I'd, I'd like to see uh, two or three good programs in the next five years be created in major metropolitan areas that include uh, academic preparation at the graduate level and a rigorous internship program in the local hospitals. If we could do that, you know, I, I think that would be a major step in the right direction. I agree completely. I, as I try to think of one thing, what would the one thing be? I guess that's it. The question is how to make that happen. For a long time, I was advocating a similar model to how BME programs expanded. There was a foundation established that grew the number of biomedical engineering programs from perhaps a dozen in the 70s and early 80s to over probably about 140 currently. And that foundation provided a lot of startup funds. And for a long time, I I felt that unless we had a similar foundation and a similar push from a philanthropic perspective, we aren't going to be able to see an increase in academic programs, especially at a baccalaureate level. Well, okay. Well, is there any parting thoughts you'd like to provide to our listeners before we wrap up this episode of the Amy Podcast? I have a thought. If we're talking about educational programs, I see so many associate's degree programs, bachelor programs, and, um, well, there aren't that many uh, graduate programs that um, have good academic courses. But from our experience at the University of Connecticut, we found that having a real strong relationship with the local hospitals so that the students do an extensive internship and really get a chance to not only see but do all of the tasks that clinical engineering is involved in really makes it hit home for the students so they become so much more effective. So since there are only about 30 uh, associate's degree programs for BMETs and, uh, and a handful of bachelor's degree programs and just a few master's programs, that's wonderful and those need to expand. But what really needs to expand as well is clinical engineering professionals 
those who are directors of clinical engineering or managers of clinical engineering or supervisors to reach out to the local academic program and offer their facility as a training site, as an orientation site for new students so that this academic training can really be sounded down by seeing it in practice. I firmly feel that having the students receive the academic training, but then see it in use, see it in action, uh, really is uh, makes them so much more effective. So there's a strong role that the community can play in supporting education as well. And I agree with that 100%. I do get pushback from clinical sites, especially where the manager has no academic degree. Hmm. They're really hesitant to mentor, for example, baccalaureate students, just from a political kind of point of view. But I think that healthcare has a long tradition of an internship training model. And the profession itself, the HTM profession, needs to understand that we have to all work together to train these students so that we don't have pushback at different sites. And it is more of a collaborative training environment. Well, and I'll tell you from a selfish perspective, I think uh, intern programs are great because they've been a great source of kind of weeding out who you want to join your team. As you guys mentioned, it's hard enough to find enough candidates, but when they've already interned with you, they're more likely to want to then work for you in the long run. So, Well, except for example, Frank mentioned his Chilean students. They're not going to work for the hospital. Oh, sure. I have the same issue. I have international students and the hospitals say, I won't take them. They're not going to work for me. Oh, well, then just for the greater good. It's um, definitely an interesting discussion, a lot more to it than I might have thought when uh, we first decided to uh, do an episode regarding the education of HTMs. I think all three of us are pretty passionate about this industry, this this profession, and uh, definitely we could probably go on for quite a while and talk about it, but uh, I will have to wrap it up for now. Uh, thank you for joining us for this episode of the Amy Podcast. Thanks, uh, Barb and Frank. Thanks, Terry. It's been uh, been enjoyable. I agree. And we want to thank you, our listener, for joining us for this episode of the Amy Podcast. Please be sure to check our show notes for links to the various documents we discussed today. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes if you're an iPhone user, or use the Stitcher app if you're an Android user. Or if you'd like, stop by amy.org, that's A-A-M-I dot org, to check out the podcast and a number of other great resources. For this episode of the Amy Podcast... I'm Terry Baker.